Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 10 of Mongols and Mamluks and the title is The Return of the Mongols. Now, as you've heard in the previous episodes, in the late 13th century, the age of the Crusaders was coming to a close. The Crusader state in the Middle East had shrunk to a handful of coastal towns like Acre, Tripoli and Tyre. The great city of Antioch had fallen to the Mamluks in 1268 and had been virtually destroyed. The times had changed dramatically since the days of the First Crusade. Western Europe had basically lost interest in the concept of crusading, and the Middle East had become the battleground between two much greater powers than the Crusaders, who were the Mamluks based in Egypt, and the Mongols, whose vast empire had fragmented into four separate states, with the one in the Middle East, which controlled the territory in modern-day Persia and Iraq, called the the Ilkhanate. Now, the Ilkhanate was still very powerful and a major threat to the Mamluks, as well as being an important ally for the Crusaders. So, in this episode, we'll hear about how the Mongols wanted to launch a new offensive against the Mamluks, and the really interesting point is that they were extremely keen to get the Crusaders on their side for a joint attack. Now, this should have been a heaven-sent opportunity for the Crusaders, no pun intended, but as you'll hear, the response from Christian Europe was surprisingly weak. This was really because the remaining crusaders in the Holy Land were still pretty suspicious of the Mongols, since probably rightly they reckoned that they would just end up as a vassal state to the Mongols if they joined them to beat the Mamelukes. And in Western Europe, while there was still a lot more interest in a potential alliance with the Mongols, the problem was that the political will to launch a crusade as a joint attack on Islam with the Mongols simply didn't exist. This was really because the popular religious fervour that had driven the First Crusade had evaporated and the sense of prestige in leading a crusade among the great European monarchs had also waned. So, as you'll hear, the result was that Christian Europe, I think, missed out on what could have been a game-changing opportunity to make a concerted strike together with the Mongols against the Mamluks. Now, I know that you'll also be thinking, hey, we're rapidly drawing towards the end of the story of the Crusade. So what's going to happen to this podcast? Well, as I mentioned in the last episode, I'm pleased to say that it's far from over yet. Since I'd like to get back to Byzantium, which we've rather neglected for a lot of the last episodes, and in particular to tell the story of the fall of Constantinople to the Ottoman Turks in 1453, which I regard as one of the main consequences of the failure of the Crusades. And after that, I'm delighted to say that I'm intending to do more history podcasts on other subjects around Roman, Byzantine and medieval history. So stay tuned for those. So let's get on with this episode about the return of the Mongols. As before, I'll read from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. In July 1277, there was rejoicing in Crusader Outremer when news came of the death of the Mamluk Sultan Baibars. His successor was his eldest son, Baraka, a weak youth whose time was employed in trying to control the Mamluk emirs. But in August 1279, the emir of the Syrian troops, Kalawan, revolted and marched on Cairo. 
Baraka abdicated in favour of his 17-year-old brother and Kalawan took over the government. Four months later, Kalawan displaced the child and proclaimed himself sultan. The governor of Damascus, Sonkor al-Ashkar, refused to accept his authority and proclaimed himself sultan there next April, but he was unable to maintain himself against the Mamluks. After a battle close to Damascus in June 1280, he retired to northern Syria and soon made his peace with Kalawan who thus obtained the whole of Baibars's empire. The Crusaders made no use of the respite. In vain, the Mongol Ilkhan Abaga and his vassal Leo III of Armenia urged an alliance and a crusade. Their only advocate was the Order of the Hospital. Charles of Anjou, with his hatred of Byzantium and its Genoese allies, ordered his warden at Acre, Roger of San Severino, to keep to an alliance with the Venetians, the Templars and the Mamluk court. The Pope, who'd been promised by the Emperor Michael the submission of the Byzantine Church, encouraged Charles in his Syrian schemes in order to distract him from an attack on Constantinople. King Edward I of England showed his sympathy with the Mongols, but he was was far away in England and had neither the time nor the money for a new crusade. Meanwhile, the Mongol Ilkhan was eager to strike against the Mamluks before Kalawan should be able to consolidate himself. Sonkor, the ex-emir of Damascus, was still defying the Mamluks in northern Syria when, at the end of September 1280, a Mongol army crossed the Euphrates and on the 20th of October it entered Aleppo where it pillaged the markets and burnt the mosques. The terrified Muslim inhabitants of the districts fled south towards Damascus. At the same time, the Hospitallers of Markab made a highly profitable raid into the Bukaya, penetrating almost to the castle of Krak, and as they returned, defeating near Maraclea, the Muslim army sent to restrain them. But the Mongols were not in full enough strength to hold Aleppo. When Kalawan assembled his forces at Damascus, they retreated back across the Euphrates. The Sultan contented himself with sending a force to punish the Hospitallers, who defeated it in in front of Markab. About the same time, a Mongol ambassador appeared at Acre to tell the Crusaders that the Ilkhan proposed sending an army of a 100,000 men to Syria next spring and to beg them to supplement him with men and munitions. The Hospitallers sent the message on to the English King Edward, but at Acre itself there was no response. However, the news of the coming Mongol invasion frightened Kalawan. He made peace with Songkor in June 1281, enfiefing him with Antioch and Apamea, and he sent to Acre to suggest a 10-year truce with the military orders. The truce made with the government at Acre in 1272 still had over a year to run. Some of the emirs in the Egyptian embassy told the Crusaders not to make terms with Kalawan, as he would soon be overthrown. When Roger of San Severino heard this, he at once wrote to warn the Sultan, who was able to arrest the conspirators in time. Meanwhile, the military orders at Acre agreed to the treaty, which was signed on the 3rd of May. On the 16th of July, Beaumont made a similar truce. It was a diplomatic triumph for Kalawan, a united crusader effort on his flank, even without reinforcements from the West, would have seriously complicated his campaign against the Mongols. In September 1281, two Mongol armies advanced into Syria – 
one commanded by the Ilkhan in person, slowly reduced the Muslim fortresses along the Euphrates frontier, while the second, under his brother Mangu Timur, first made contact with Leo III of Armenia, then marched down through Aintab and Aleppo into the Orontes Valley. Kaliwan had already gone to Damascus, where he assembled his forces and hurried northward. The Crusaders held aloof, except for the Hospitallers of Markab, who refused to consider themselves bound by the truce made by the Order at Acre. A few of their knights rode out to join the King of Armenia. On the 30th of October, the Mongol and Mamluk armies met just outside Homs. Mangu Timur commanded the Mongol centre while other Mongol princes on his left and on his right his Georgian auxiliaries with King Leo and the Hospitallers. The Muslim right was under Al-Mansur of Hama. Kalawan himself commanded the Egyptians in the centre with the army of Damascus under the Emir Lajin beside him and on the left the former rebel Sonkor with the northern Syrians and Turkomans. When the battle was joined the Christians on the Mongol right soon routed Songkor, whom they pursued right into his camp at Homs, thus losing touch with their centre. Meanwhile, though the Mongol left held firm, Mangu Timur himself was wounded in the course of a Mamluk attack on the centre. His nerve left him, and he ordered a retreat. Leo of Armenia and his comrades found themselves isolated. They had to fight their way back northwards, suffering heavy losses, but Kalawan had lost too many men to follow in pursuit. The Mongol army recrossed the Euphrates without further losses. The great river remained the frontier between the two empires, and Kalawan did not venture to punish the Armenians. The prior of the English hospitallers, Joseph of Chauncey, who was visiting the east, was present at the battle and wrote afterwards to the English King Edward I to describe it. He said that King Hugh and Prince Bermond had not been able to join the Mongols in time. He was probably trying to shield them from the wrath of the English king, who was the only Western monarch still to take an interest in the Holy War, and who strongly favoured the Mongol alliance. But Edward's perspicacity was not copied in the east. King Hugh had done nothing. Beaumont had made a truce with the Muslims, while Roger of San Severino, King Charles's deputy, made a special journey to meet Kalawan and indeed congratulated him on his victory. Meanwhile, in Sicily, there occurred an event that would dominate Western Europe for the next few years. On the evening of the 30th of March, 1282, the Sicilians, exasperated by the arrogance of Charles of Anjou and his soldiers, suddenly rose up and massacred every Frenchman in the island. The so-called Sicilian Vespers had far wider effects than the angry islanders could have expected. Charles's great Mediterranean empire was shown to be without foundation. For the next decades, he and his successors vainly tried to recover Sicily from the Aragonese princes who were elected to its throne. The Angevin kingdom of Naples was no longer a world power, and the papacy which had guaranteed to the Angevins their Sicilian kingdom was humiliated and ruined financially in its attempts to restore its clients. Angevin schemes in the Balkans 
Balkans and further to the east were abandoned. At Constantinople, the Byzantine emperor sighed with relief. He had no longer to infuriate his people by offering the submission of their church to Rome if Rome would curb Charles's ambitions. In Crusader Outremer, Charles of Anjou's general, Roger of San Severino, suddenly found himself without any backing. He was summoned to return to Italy by his master and left Acre towards the end of the year, confiding his position as warden to Odo Hualchien. To the Mamluks of Egypt, the collapse of Charles of Anjou's power came as a shock, but also as a relief. Both Baibars and Calawan had feared and respected him, and therefore had refrained from attacking his new province in Outremer. Now there was no one to restrain the Sultan, as long as the Crusaders could be kept from alliance with the Mongols. In June 1283, when the truce signed at Caesarea ended, Calawan offered Odo Poilchien to renew it for another ten years. Odo gladly accepted, but he was unsure of his authority. The treaty was therefore signed on the Crusader side in the name of the Commune of Acre and the Templars of Athlet and Sidon. It guaranteed the Crusaders in their possession of the territory from the Ladder of Tyre north of Acre to Mount Carmel and Athlet, and also of Sidon but Tyre and Beirut were excluded. The right of free pilgrimage to Nazareth was maintained. But Calawan was preparing to attack those of the Crusaders who were not protected by this treaty. The widowed ladies who governed Beirut and Tyre, Esquiva and Margaret, hastened to ask him for a truce which was granted to them. The Sultan's objective was the great castle of the hospital at Markab, whose inmates had too often allied themselves with the Mongols So on the 17th of April 1285, the Sultan appeared with a great army at the foot of the mountain on which the castle stands, bringing a larger number of siege engines than had ever been seen together before. His men dragged them up the hillside and began to pound at the walls, but the castle was well equipped and its own mangonels had the advantage of position. Many of the enemy's siege machines were destroyed. For a month, the Muslims could make no progress at last the Sultan's engineers succeeded in digging a mine under the Tower of Hope, which rose at the end of the northern salient and filling it with inflammable wood. On the 23rd of May, the mine was fired and the tower came crashing down. Its fall interrupted the assault of the Muslims and they were driven back, but the garrison had discovered that the mine penetrated far further under their defences. They knew that they were lost and capitulated. The 25 officers of the order who were in the castle were allowed to retire with all of their possessions on horseback and fully armed. The rest of the garrison was allowed to go free but could take nothing with them. They retired to Tortosa and then to Tripoli. Calawan made his formal entry into the castle on the 25th of May. Meanwhile, on the 15th of August, Outremer proclaimed a new king when Henry of Cyprus was crowned at Tyre by the Archbishop. After the ceremony, the court returned to Acre and there they held a fortnight of festivity. There were games and tournaments and in the great hall of the hospital, pageants were enacted. There were scenes from the story of the round table with Lancelot and Tristram and Palamedes and they played the tale of the Queen of Femini from the Romance of Troy. Not for a century had 
had there been such a splendid festival in Outremer. The handsome boy king charmed everyone, for it was not yet known that he was epileptic. Behind him, to advise him in everything, were his uncles Philip and Baldwin of Ebelin, who were deeply respected. On their advice, he did not remain long at Acre, but returned in a few weeks' time to Cyprus, leaving Baldwin of Ebelin as warden. The Sultan of Cairo must have smiled to hear of the frivolous celebrations of the Crusaders, but to the Mongol Ilkhan at Tabriz it seemed that the time had come for more serious action against the Mamluks. Abaga had died on the 1st of April 1282. His successor as the Mongol Ilkhan was his brother Takuda, who in his childhood had been baptised into the Nestorian Christian faith under the name of Nicholas. But his tastes lay towards the Muslims. Hardly was he on the throne before he announced his conversion to Islam and took the name of Ahmed and title of Sultan. At the same time, he sent to Cairo to conclude a treaty of friendship with Kalawan. His policy horrified the older Mongols of his court, who complained at once to the great Khan Kublai. With Kublai's approval, Abaga's son Argun led a revolt in Khorasan, where he was governor. He was defeated at first, but Ahmed was soon deserted by his generals and was murdered in a palace conspiracy on the 10th of August 1284. Argun at once took the throne. Like his father, Argun was religiously eclectic. His own sympathies were for Buddhism, but his vizier Sadadullah was a Jew and his best friend was the Nestorian Christian Mar Yabala. This remarkable man was a Turk in origin, born in the Chinese province of Shanxi. He had come with his compatriot Rabam Suma westward in the vain hope of making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He had a great influence over the new Ilkhan, who longed to rescue the holy places of Christendom from the Muslims, but who always said that he would not do so unless the Christian kings of the West gave their aid. So, in 1285, Argun wrote to Pope Honorius IV to suggest common action, but he received no answer. Two years later, he decided to send an embassy to the West, and he chose as his ambassador Mar Yabalar's friend Rabban Sorma. The ambassador, who wrote a vivid account of his mission, set out early in 1287. Sailing from Trebizond, he reached Constantinople about Easter time. He was cordially received by the Byzantine Emperor Andronicus and visited the great church of San Sophia and the other great shrines of the imperial city. Andronicus was already on excellent terms with the Mongols and was ready to help them as far as his dwindling resources allowed. From Constantinople, Rabban Sorma went to Naples, arrived there at the end of June. While he was there, he saw a sea battle in the harbour between the Aragonese and the Neapolitan fleets. It was his first indication that Western Europe was preoccupied with its own squabbles. He rode on to Rome. There he found that Pope Honorius had just died and the conclave to elect his successor had not yet assembled. The twelve cardinals who were resident in Rome received him, but he found them ignorant and unhelpful. They knew nothing of the spread of Christianity among the Mongols 
struggles and were shocked that he should serve a heathen master. When he tried to discuss politics, they cross-questioned him about his faith and criticised its divergences from their own. In the end, he almost lost his temper. He had come, he said, to pay respects to the Pope and to make plans for the future, not to hold a debate about Christianity. After he had worshipped in the chief churches of Rome, he went gladly to Genoa. The Genoese welcomed him with great ceremony. The Mongol alliance was important to them, and they gave due attention to the ambassador's proposals. But they promised no alliance against the Mamluks. Next, Rabban Sorma travelled to France, England, and then back to Rome to see the new Pope Nicholas IV. But everywhere he went, he found excuses not to go on crusade. He returned to the Mongol court with the message that the Christian West had lost its interest in crusading. Had the Mongol alliance been achieved and honestly implemented by the West, the existence of crusade Crusader Outremer would almost certainly have been prolonged. The Mamluks would have been crippled if not destroyed, and the Ilkhanate of Persia would have survived as a power friendly to the Christians and the West. As it was, the Mamluk Empire survived for nearly three centuries, and within four years of Argun's death, the Mongols of Persia passed into the Muslim camp. It was not only the Crusaders of Outremer whose cause was lost by the negligence of the West, but also also the Nestorian Church of the East, and this negligence was primarily due to the quarrels between the Christian monarchs and the Pope. It meant that the Crusaders still living in the Holy Land were doomed, and it would not be long before they were finally destroyed. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd be delighted if you wanted to recommend it to a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear how the Crusaders started their final descent into oblivion. See you then. (laughs) 